This podcast contains depictions of violence that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever podcast of Brood and Bloody. We're so glad you're here today and listening in. Before we really get started, we just want to introduce ourselves. My name is Parker Simmons. And my name is Brooke Daughtry. And we're going to be your host for this podcast. So a little bit about why we really chose to do this podcast. Um, the idea came from Publico Monday. Brooke and I were getting tacos and we were just sitting there and I was like, Brooke, you know, we love talking about true crime podcasts so much. We really should just come up, come up with our own and create our own. And I know that there are just so many cases in our area that really don't get the attention that they deserve. So our goal through this podcast is to really bring light and attention to those cases and to help really spread the word about them because who knows maybe the answers are out there or maybe it's something that we need to have a lesson in that we got we all need to take away and apply it to our own life yep and you can never know too much about your town and about the history so in diving into these cases we've liked to really expand on our local culture um part of that kind of includes drinking a little bit on the side so that comes where our that's where our brews come from um we love our trips to the brewery and hanging out with our friends so we're going to be incorporating that in another local aspect yes and so one thing i'm really excited about that we're we're going to be doing once every other week or once a week is really highlighting a couple of our local businesses, whether that's a brewery, whether that's just somewhere that you can go have fun out on the town, uh, but we will be kind of highlighting um, a special beer that we liked or somewhere uh, that if you are 21 and up, you can go enjoy. Um, so with that though, we're gonna go ahead and get started with our first case. So this is the story of a girl who was a lot like us. She was a college student who enjoyed hanging out with her friends, who enjoyed really all the typical things a college student would do. It's a girl who spent time with her family, who volunteered at the local art museum on Main Street, who wanted to take a night and go enjoy it with her friends. A girl who that same night would disappear to never be seen again leaving behind fear, pain, and unanswered questions that still baffle police to this day. So sit back, crack open a cold one, and listen in, because this is the story of Dale Dinwiddie. Dale Dinwiddie was the firstborn child of Dan and Jean Dinwiddie. Dale lived in the Forest Hills area of Columbia, South Carolina. It's just east of Hardin Street, so if you're going down Gervais Street, um, you're going to pass through the Vista, you're going to go by Main Street, and then you're going to go right past the Five Points area. And that Forest Hills area is just towards the northeast of Five Points. The Greenville News actually reports it to be a community straddling the line between the affluence of forced acres and the poverty of places like the former Gonzalez Gardens projects. And I think that's really important to understand because 
that area in itself is an area that people go to raise a family. It's the part of Columbia where you'll see people with their children. You know, it's, it's a nicer area of Columbia. It's more of like a family home style area. And that's where Dale's from. And that's the background that she came from. She came from a supportive family of people who loved her of, you know, what's considered to be more of the middle class lifestyle. But the story of un the stories of unsolved reports that Dale at the time had just graduated from Randolph-Macon Women's College in Lynchburg, Virginia, where she got a degree in art history. So she had just finished up her undergrad. She was planning on starting her graduate degree at the time. Um, and I know so many friends, and Brooke does too, who have done their undergrad at USC, have stayed around, or have come in to do, to do their, their graduate degree. So there's just a lot of people in Columbia uh, that have that background. And I know one of the facts that they actually teach me as a university ambassador is that there are around 26,000 undergrad and in total at the university, there's around 35,000 students total. So that leaves about 9,000 students for that graduate degree, which is a very much smaller proportion when compared to you know, the university as a whole. So, I mean, these are people who are experienced, who've done that, who've kind of lived the college life. One of my favorite um, things that I kind of read in this article about Dale is that she would volunteer at the art, at the art museum on Main Street. And I just think it's, you know, those are the type of people who are, they're out giving back to their community, who are trying to really make it a better place. And I really relate to Dale on that and trying to make especially this Columbia area that we call home a better place. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And then I think looking at, you know, that history alone of her, you see the excitement of a student who just came from an all-girls college, uh, somewhere a little further than Columbia, South Carolina, coming back home, coming to pursue higher education in a, a school as large and exciting as the University of South Carolina, and like you said, involved in her community. Um, so just really a lot of potential going on, a lot of and really honestly, good traction. And honestly, such a drive. The, yeah. I know almost every research or in all of my research that I did in every article, it really just talked about her really wanting to pursue her graduate degree at USC. And her family really highlighted that in several of the reports with different um, news stories. So it really just goes to show like she was a very driven individual. She was pursuing, you know, and she, she had a plan for the future. She wanted to really be the best that she could be in that sense. Absolutely. Well, it was a warm day on Wednesday, September 23rd, 1992. 23-year-old Dale Dinwiddie went through her typical day, but one thing was different. Chilling Crimes reports that on that day, Dale Dinwiddie was asked by her friends to attend a U2 concert at Williams Bryce Football Stadium later that evening. And one detail that this source really highlights is that she hadn't originally planned on that. And I can really see myself you know, texting Brooke one day, being like, hey, Brooke, let's go over to Village Idiot and, like, getting pizza. And we wouldn't have planned on doing that at all. But Brooke, I know Brooke will always say yes to that. So <laughs> I really see her just ha ha being with her friends and her friends saying, hey, let's go, and getting FOMO a little bit like me in those situations and heading out to go to that concert with her friends. So she attended that concert later that evening at the williams Bryce Football Stadium. And... 
the Charlie Project noticed that the concert ends around 11.15 p.m. It's at this time that Dale and her friends decide that they want to go to Five Points to enjoy a night out on the town after the concert. So right after at 11.15, they head to Jungle Gems. And Jungle Gems was really the college bar. It was the place to be. Um, I know Brooke and I, we love going to Jake's now, or we love going to Village, just hanging out, getting pizza, being out there with our friends. Um, and Jungle Gyms was really that place for those college students. They enjoyed going there. I know it highlights that this was like the local college bar at the time. Yeah, and I think looking, you know, at this scenario as a whole, I mean, how many times do, does the Gamecock student program give out tickets last minute to events um, right here on campus? And of course, right after a big concert, everybody wants to go down to five points. It is always popping. It is always having something fun. So I definitely, this is like a fun Saturday night for me. Like this is exactly what we do. Um, to Absolutely, just really that, yeah. yeah. And I immediately just think of the, Beyonce and Jay-Z concert in Williams Rice our freshman year I wanted to go so bad I unfortunately had a test the next day so I was blocked from going um, but my my older sister went and after that she she and her friends went out to five points and they yeah. they went to Publico at the time but they just went out and enjoyed the night and so this is just something that we all do this is the typical USC college experience absolutely well one interesting detail about jungle gyms and brooke i know you've heard of this bar and most people at usc will as long as you're probably a junior senior you'll know this but jungle gyms later rebranded to become the horseshoe ah yes the horseshoe classic horseshoe <laughs> um and the horseshoe was located right on harden street and for those of you who have been around the area, if you're looking at a map of Five Points today, if you go and look right on the corner of Harden Street and Divine Street, you'll see Home Team Barbecue. And Home Team Barbecue is uh, right in the corner and it's right next to what used to be the Horseshoe. And the Horseshoe did close down a little while back, but um, so it was right smack dab in the center of Five Points surrounded by other college bars there are plenty of other people out that night after the concert so this is a really busy area especially in columbia in any nighttime. yeah and i mean this the skeleton so to speak is still there of the horseshoe that building is still up i think the sign is still right outside so this is not that far back when you really think about it yeah absolutely but in 1992 jungle gyms was the place to be and that's really why after that U2 concert, Dale and her friends decided to head straight there. As the Charlie Project reports, Dale's friends left the bar at approximately 1 a.m. when they couldn't find her. They assumed that Dale had a family member pick her up. She had talked about having a family member come get her. I know that um, in the Live 5 News report that I was reading, her father mentioned that she knew that she could call him at any point in time and they would come and get her. So she knew that a family member could come pick her up and her friends knew that as well. So there's kind of this understanding that she was going to be picked up by one of them and they were going to take her home. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely important to know uh, as a college 
aged woman. It's a really big red flag when one of your friends goes missing, especially another girl. And so there's always that buddy system that's kind of in place, that unspoken rule of don't leave your friends. But when you do hear about someone who's a local who has their family such close ties, um, it makes a little bit of sense. Still, still some red flags, but I can kind of see where they're coming from. Yeah, I, I definitely can see. I mean, and you're never really wanting to immediately be like, oh, my friend is missing. Like, you're like, oh, they probably just went home. Especially when uh, when you have some Irish exits in. Yeah, I know I've, I've pulled that card a few times on and just I, wanting I've to go home. I've definitely seen that and just ready to go home and, and you kind of peace out. But that night at around 1 a.m., Dale's friends couldn't find her. So they had assumed that she'd left. So they decided, hey, time for us to go home. They were tired, especially probably after standing or, and being at that concert. So they were like, it's time to go well, home. The, the bouncer really reports um, at 1.15 saying that Dale was stranded looking for her friends, that she had come up to him asking if he had seen where they went. He said that he hadn't. And so it is about... 15 minutes later that that same bouncer who reported to have seen her at 115 says that he saw her walking north on Harden Street towards Green Street. So that's walking out. He's walking towards Harden Street. That's going to be the area right across the street from the Five Points Fountain. So that is right in the dead center of Five Points. Yeah, and I think listening to this, just based off of this, it's definitely... A situation that draws some attention whenever you have someone separated uh, whether her friends left on purpose or by accident or however you want to look at the situation um, it's it's a little dangerous and especially especially being alone at that like time of the night yep. by yourself and not being able to contact anyone because you know you think about it, it's 92 cell phones aren't big yet and it's it's a it's yeah, a dilemma like, so I don't I don't know if they had like pay phones in the bars at the time right. or if that was a thing. I'm I'm not sure, but there were no cell phones, so you're right. She had no way of like contacting them. So when when she left, that was it. And as the story of unsolved reports, it's at six fifteen that next morning when Dale's father, Dan, went to let out the family dog. And the family dog actually slept in her bro- um, younger brother Drew's room and he was sixteen years old at the time, but He passed Dale's room and noticed that her lights and radio were on, as well as her bed had not been slept in. And I really want to hype up that point, that her bed had not been slept in. So she has not been home. So she had not been there at all, which, reading it, I don't know if there was a significance about her lights and radio being on, if she had been back and turned them on, if she had left if she had if she was like getting ready for the night and then kept that on so none of my sources really went into detail about that but it was very specific to note that her lights and radio were on and that her bed had not been slept in and so dan not really immediately thinking the worst which i think is the natural reaction of any person in any situation where you're missing someone ask his wife and his son if Dale had planned to spend the night at a friend's house. Both of them confirmed that she was supposed to have come back home that night. So Dan began calling the friends that Dale was out with that night. And one by one, 
they told him that she had left. They thought that she had been picked up by him and was brought home that night. And so Dale was, as I mentioned once, she was very highly involved. And part of what she did at the time was work as a nanny. So she would take care of this 10-year-old boy and she would take him to the bus stop in the morning. So she, not being there at the time, raised a red flag immediately that something was wrong because she knew that she had to be there to meet him at the bus stop that morning. So as all of her friends say that she's not there, she's not back to do her job and be a nanny, Dan's worry really began to grow worse and worse. And it's at 8.30 a.m. Dan reports Dale missing to police. So there is a seven-hour time span between the time that the bouncer last saw Dale and her father reports her missing to police. That's crazy. That is a fraction of what usually happens nowadays, I feel like. Yes, and typically police say that you have to wait 24 hours. You'll hear that in so many cases of where police go, they haven't been missing long enough, maybe they'll come back, maybe they just stayed at a friend's, but police take this missing person's report seven hours after she was last seen missing. So that would make her chances a little better, you would think? You would think, yes. Um, But that's really the last thing that we know for sure. And every source I have read um, really about this case immediately says that police assumed something had happened to her. So it, it had come off as not being a, hey, maybe she's just at a friend's. They thought from the get-go that something had happened to her. And as Kathleen Parker with the Washington Post reports, Bud Ferrillo's public relations office ordered their entire office and staff to help organize efforts to find Dale within like 24, 48 hours. It was such a quick turnaround. So you have an entire office staff, a whole like section, um, and really a lot of people out looking for Dale very, very quickly. Hundreds of college and high school students flooded the University of South Carolina and surrounding areas, putting up flyers of Dale right after her disappearance. And get this, Brooke, volunteer truckers distributed flyers in every state in the continental U.S. Wow, that, that is... That was like within a week. Wow, that's that's crazy. I mean, not only do you have thousands of mm-hmm. locals and students out looking for one girl, which honestly, we've seen even in our time here at Carolina several times where someone goes missing for a little bit and you see a picture circulating in a group me or in a text string and everybody's on high alert. And for that to be happening so early, even without all this technology we have today, I feel like is is a very big deal. And I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say. Because, you know, today you have social media, you've got Twitter. I know that we have a couple different Twitter um, accounts that we have starred that if anything ever happens at the university or in the surrounding Columbia area, they'll immediately send it out. But at this point in time, that didn't exist. And I think that's also significant because because they didn't have social media, you really couldn't go look at Snapchat and see that. So 
having such a quick turnaround and really looking for her would immediately make you think that their their efforts and that very fast response would produce really a quick quick result but what we learn is that that is not the case the public response was very strong in trying to find her but the difficult thing in this case is there was no direction to look no one knew what happened to her the last time they saw her was at 1:30, so days really turned into weeks and weeks turned into years since that time brooke there have been no credible sightings suspects or significant leads there have been theories though and we'll get into those theories but that absolutely blows my mind that is a stone cold case stone cold not even a credible sighting or even a lead so she just disappeared vanished into thin air off the face of the earth that's incredible that's crazy absolutely insane but again there have been theories in this case and we'll get into those so off the bat really in any disappearance case there are always going to be two main theories that you see the first is going to be that they left on their own or that something happened to them and so as mentioned police did not believe that dale disappeared on her own according to chilling crimes dale had severe asthma that required her to use an inhaler regularly. At the time of her disappearance, she had no medication on her. Therefore, she was planning on coming back. So could she even survive without this? And for how long? The way that the articles say, no. It was like every two, three days, she had to take this regularly prescribed inhaler. And she didn't have it on her at the time. Someone that needs like medicine like that you're coming back to get that like there's a need there right and second what police later learn is that dale left her purse at the bar that night all of her belongings everything she had on her was inside of that bar Jeez, i mean i know when i go out it is like your purse is your best friend that is attached to your hip it's against you the whole time you bring it to the bathroom i mean you don't leave that anywhere so that's another just really that's a something that hits home but you know like even if you wanted to disappear on your own you still need money for that yeah like it takes finances to disappear someone wanting to disappear would take their purse with them even just for some little momento yeah just like there would be a financial transaction showing where money was pulled out or where she cashed a check or there would be a financial lead but there's nothing nothing absolutely nothing and so dale would have taken that with her and that's especially why i think the police very early on assumed that something had happened to her but as mentioned how, like where do you even start because you have no crime scene the, la- the very last thing you have is a sighting from a bartender at 1.30 in the morning saying that you're walking north towards Green Street. So how do you even look when you can't even prove that a crime has even been committed? 
yeah I where do you start do you interview people do you start asking around Do you knock on doors you know what what's their step so the very first thing that police do and they do it very early on is they reach out to the public for tips over the years tips have come in and investigators have followed them all up as reported by the state newspaper detectives tore out a floor at a house in five points after new tenants complained about a foul odor following a tip tore out a floor Yeah, they like went into this place and like tore it out because some people thought it smelled weird and so they thought that there was body that's i i don't know yeah the, the source didn't say i have so many questions about this one in particular like I... what is the tip <laughs> that is what I want to know. I feel like I keep having questions with everything that goes on. I mean, it's it's not even one door closes, another opens. It's all the doors are open. I it's, mean, yes, yes. And so another tip actually came in, and detectives went down to Williamsburg County, and the, this tip came in that a body was there. So they put on their waiters, and they actually the source mentioned that they brought guns with them because they thought that snakes would fall on top of them and they waited around in the waters in this swamp in Williamsburg County looking for her body so I mean off the bat even with these two tips like to me it comes off like they are following up on every tip right right you're reaching for every string you can try to grab that's yeah and actually another tip was that they took um they got a tip in and they took cadaver dogs to find and out to see if they could track where she had been that night. So they started the bar, went around, and they found some bones. And so they sent the bones off to be tested, and guess what? They came back as broke. Don't tell me they came back as a person. Unfortunately, they did not. Okay. Or this case would be a lot shorter, um, but they those bones came back, and they came back as being deer bones. Which didn't really give a precise location as to where they found these deer bones, but I don't know about you. I haven't really seen that many deer around the horseshoe, <laughs> so I'm not sure where they went with this one. Um, but they did find those deer bones, and so that case again goes cold. But I think this next tip, Brooke, is really one of the most promising that they had, and so investigators get a tip from an inmate who was a convicted drug dealer that Dale's body was in a car at the bottom of a private pond. And so they go out there. They go, they take the inmate. The inmate takes them to the very pond brook and they look in and guess what they find? A car. A car. Okay. So... Investigators are really thinking that this is a really promising lead. This could be taking them somewhere. And maybe that's the day that they finally bring Dale home. But they call the FBI, and the FBI comes in, and they're prepared to send the car up for analysis um, at Quantico. But they get a crane, and they pull the car up, but no body. The inmate had lied the entire way through. So did he know that there was a car? Was that a shot in the dark? What? Where's the lie string from? I, I Obviously, he had to have known there was a car there. 
how would he have known to take investigators there without the car? But he knew that there was never a body in that car. Interesting. So, you know, it's just, it just to show you how many false tips have come in over the years. Right. Okay, Brooke, now this is where things get interesting. So, one theory that has come up in nearly every single source that I've read was that Dale was abducted and killed by a serial killer named Renato Javier Rivera. As the Charlie Project reports, Renato Javier Rivera is a serial killer who admitted to murdering four women, two in South Carolina and two in Georgia. And this is where it gets crazy, Brooke. Because in 1992, guess where Ronaldo Rivera was? That's tricky. Don't tell me he was here. Brooke, he was a student at the University of South Carolina. At the same time. The same time. Oh, great. And so, Ronaldo Javier Rivera was in ROTC at the time and had received a full scholarship from the Navy to attend. He had been selected for a very elite military program and his other victims that we know he was convicted for later on admitted to murdering were all in their late teens, early 20s. And Brooke, I actually have a picture of that and I'm gonna show it to you and we're gonna have this posted on our Instagram so that anyone following along in this case can look at but Brooke I just want you to take a look at this and tell me what you think what you see so I'll get this sent to you yeah and in the meantime I mean this guy sounds pretty normal I'd almost say you know I have friends in ROTC I have friends all over campus that you know are into that type of thing and it's not for the week you know you have to know I mean, it even requires, like, a very high level of intelligence. Yeah. Like, you have to know how to take orders. It requires you to know how to... I know one of my, one of my good friends... The one thing that when he was here, he was in... Uh, they would take him out to do, like, practice at, like, different shooting ranges. So it's very much like preparing you for that military lifestyle. Yeah, and a lot of dedication, but... All right, I'm looking at these pictures. <laughs> yeah, so there, that picture is of his four victims. And Brooke, kind of tell me, do you see any similarities, any differences? For sure, yeah. I would say that they're all college-aged women. They're all white. They're brunette. They're pretty. Um, and they do resemble Dale in a general sense, for sure. Yes, and I think that's really what has pushed this theory so much is because they look so similar and the one thing that really gets to me in this case is just that the fact that they even had a serial killer on campus this guy does he not and maybe this is a question for our ROTC friends out there and our friends in the military do they require you to go through like a psych eval coming in or to have like a checkup that I mean I don't know could be a good question but very interesting to me to think that this individual was on campus and 
no one noticed. No one noticed. And did the murders happen, like, while he was... So, to the four women, they occurred later on, but, like, he committed those crimes within 10 years of, like, he committed within a decade. So, all of these theories point to him starting earlier. So, who who knows? And I, I wanted to... Looking at it, maybe it was his first victim, but looking at Dale's case in particular... And police really looked at this, and I know Chilling Crimes um, reported this as being police's first theory was that she was taken by someone that she knew. Um, and that was because it seemed so well planned out. It seemed like somebody was planning on picking her up and taking her and doing something with her. And, I mean, that's something I kind of thought about earlier, too, going back to her leaving her purse. You don't just leave your stuff, first of all, with anyone random, but you don't just go off with anyone random and leave your stuff. I mean, maybe if I had my best friend there or someone I knew really well, I'd say, oh, you know, can you watch this for me or be more inclined to not pay as much attention to it? You know, could she have been waiting for someone like that and they knew each other potentially but even even in my mind you're you have a bunch of people in one area they're all out having a good time even Brooke and I like I know going down there when we've been down there you notice when someone stands out as sketchy yep it's yep. or they're like watching you they're looking like you know when they're there right but a student someone who looked like they fit in right would raise no red flags. It's your everyday person. I mean, I was at Jake's last night, and everybody looks like a college kid. I mean, nobody really raises a red flag. I don't know half the people there, three quarters of the people there, but you know, it's I'm not intimidated by any of them. But I don't uh, yeah. know. You don't like know what they're thinking. You just don't know. But imagine even like sitting in class, and you're sitting beside someone who is or will become a serial killer. Because that's essentially what happened here. And that is insane to me. Especially you're in classes at this university starting off with 200 kids. I've sat inside Darla in 101 and it's a huge class. Yeah. And I don't know, you don't know anyone. Yeah, exactly. And it's just crazy to think that sometimes these killers can manipulate their emotions. They can put on a facade especially serial killers, to blend in with the crowd. And having a serial killer that went here, you know, I've yes. never thought about that. I've never paid any attention to that. But hearing this, you know, why haven't I heard at least a rumor about that at some point, exactly. you know? Exactly. Like, I feel like this would be something that is really mentioned more that people know of, but... My mother, actually, at the time, was a college student here at USC, and that's originally how I'd heard about Dale's case, and she had no idea. I, I'd brought this topic up for doing this today, and she thought it was insane that they had a killer on campus, and no one knew. No one knew. And no if one. there's one, are there more? Are there more? Exactly. Like, it makes me wonder, like, how close have I been to a killer? Yeah. Here, in your everyday life, if you're out of state, you know, in your hometown, where they're, they're everywhere. And that's 
the most dangerous part in some aspect is you don't know. Mm-hmm. And really, Brooke, I just want to take a moment, and I don't want to get too sidetracked, but I want to take a moment to give you just a little bit about his particular brand of psychotic. So find law goes over his court case and we'll have the link to this source and all of our other sources in our in our source material today. You can find it located on our Instagram. But find law goes over this and I want to quote this exactly from this case and I do want to give you a fair warning. It is a little graphic so if you're out there listening and maybe get a little queasy over some things, I suggest skipping forward 45 seconds to a minute um, of time just in case. But, quote, her neck and wrist were neatly wrapped with white medical tape and her wrists were also bound together by tape with about an inch of space between them. And for context, this is regarding one of his victims, Marnie Glista, who was found alive by her commanding officer. So she was a sergeant in the army. So this is a woman who's like in went through basic is found alive by her commanding officer when she doesn't show up um, for duty. And she is tied up. And again, quote, there were several abrasions equivalent to second degree burns on her wrist where it appeared that she had struggled against the tape over an extended period of time and she had injuries consistent with a ligature having been applied to her neck. There were indention marks on her back from bed rails she had been lying against, and she suffered bruising on her chest, her knees, and her pelvic area, in addition to numerous scratches and abrasions over her body. Glista's treating physician testified that Glista suffered irreversible brain damage as a result of hypoxic injury caused by a lack of blood flow and oxygen to the brain, and as a result, Glista's brain swelled until it cut off her breathing, at which point she was placed on a ventilator. On September 8th, 2000, Glista was declared to be brain dead, and she died the following day when she was removed from the ventilator. That is terrible. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. And it just goes to show you the insanity of this man like he that is just a lack for human life i would say the level of sophistication with this man because this is a military woman and first of all that is that's crazy you know how to defend yourself in that position that's what a lot of training goes towards is is self-defense and strength training i mean this is not even your everyday college woman this is very advanced. It is exactly. This is someone, and who would be hard to take down? This is not going to be. It's going to be a fight. And Renata Rivera, I think it just goes to show his level of sophistication and how he's able to manipulate his emotions and fit in. Hearing everything, just it makes it sound like he could change the way that he thought to be like any other person. And, I mean, looking at her background, were they friends? Did they work together? You know, did, did it, they have... It didn't say in, in the court case documents to be specific, but it just goes to show you the lack, just the lack of humanity in this one man. 
and him being on campus at that time, being a student at the University of South Carolina, being in the area, being someone who can blend in with a crowd, who can and knows how to take advantage of women is exactly why I believe that this theory has really blown up and why people have compared it to Dale's case at the time. Right. I mean, it's like a sheep in wolf's clothing or wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) I don't know what that quote is. But I do want to be clear, though. Rivera has never admitted to any involvement in Dale Dinwiddie's case, and there is no physical evidence suggesting that he would be involved in any way in the crime. But really those similarities between his victims and Dale Dinwiddie have driven this theory more and more. Rivera has been interviewed by police several times, according to the Charlie Project, as to whether he was involved. But if he was involved, Brooke, he's not saying. And that just goes to show you the frustration that really comes out of this case because there are valid suspects and there are valid people in the area, but you have no way of connecting them because there is no crime scene. I, I know so many cold cases that are later solved by DNA evidence, but you don't even have a body in this case. So how do you, and I think this is what's so scary, no body, no crime. How do you prove that a crime even happened without even having a place that you know it was committed? Not even not knowing the place, but not having any trail to follow i mean there's not even you know evidence found a mile away from the bar there's nothing not a thing and to tell you the truth since that time there's not been much that's come back up but in 2014 police released an aged photo what they believe dale would look like today and i sent you that photo as well bro so if you want to take a look at it It is basically an age progression um, from that last time. So she would be right around 43, and that was in 2014. So today she would be at 70. She'd be right at 50 years old. Yeah, and I mean, she looks how you would expect, you know, a a 50-year-old to look. She's very normal. It's honestly crazy to me that they have the technology to do that. They can manipulate the facial structure to anticipate what you would look like as a 43 older. So it's kind of wild that they have that, but police put that out. I'm hoping to get some more leads with that. And we're going to have that on our Instagram material if you want to view it. But last year, Live 5, WCSC News reported that police were following a new lead regarding the case after 28 long years. Today, Dale's Dinwiddie's case is Columbia, South Carolina's oldest missing persons case. And I don't know if that tip led out to anything. I, uh, hearing that police trekked through the muddy waters and pulled up cars out of lakes, I'm assuming that they're taking this lead very seriously. And it appears that, especially in that Live 5 news report, that they are. Um, but it's been a year. So who knows? This case could be cold once again 
And so I really just think that this case in particular stands as a reminder to all of us that predators are out there. They know where to look. They know who to look for. And they know how to come off as just that normal guy walking down the street or just that normal guy in a car or just that normal guy sitting next to you in class or just that normal guy sitting next to you in class you have just no idea who's there what they're doing and so you need to really use that buddy system i know brooke talked about it earlier but if you're downtown if you're out with friends if you're an adult just going out with someone to like a brewery as kind of goes with our name if you're going to a concert going to a concert if you go there with friends you leave there with those same people you make sure because you don't know what the future holds you don't know what could happen next and you can never be too careful you can never be too careful dale's father told live five somewhere somebody knows where dale is or what happened to her and you know just reading this after 28 years these people haven't lost hope that their daughter will be brought back home and you know in a lot of these cases that i saw they called her case the original samantha josephson case which this past couple years we've seen the effects of that took on our community and it's been very similar in in that sense but the Dinwiddies never got Dale back they never were able to put her to rest they are still waiting for answers to this day my heart goes out to that family and and friends and everyone who's really been affected by loss absolutely in this area I mean these are normal people trying to live their lives and Someone, somewhere, knows something. Richland County Sheriff Lott told Life 5, the department is still offering a $20,000 reward to anyone who can bring closure to this case and the Dinwiddie family. So, if you know anything, contact Crime Stoppers, which keeps all their tips anonymous, at 1-888-CRIME-SC. <laughs> today's case and you want to learn more about it we're going to have all of our source material located on our instagram so go check us out we'll also have any of the photos that we talked about today so if you want to see the other victims of ronaldo rivera or you want to see a photo of dale or the age photo that they released in 2014 we're gonna have all of that on our instagram for you to view Yep, so check it out, look at our posts, look at our sources, send it to your friends, share it, tag us. We are so excited to get to next week's episode. And I've already started researching it, Brooke, and let me tell you, it blows my mind. So stay tuned, sit back, enjoy your cold one, and we'll see you next week.